0: We're releasing this episode a few days after Valentine's Day 2022. And if you've been watching the news, you'd have seen that at around the same time, the Australian animal that receives the most amount of love, not just on Valentine's Day, the koala, is officially in a lot of trouble. It was announced last week that in one decade, we've managed to push koalas from the vulnerable list onto the endangered list. If you're listening to this, it would be a fair guess that you're a fan of animals and that this fact bothers you. But what do we do about it, especially in our profession, where we have the skills, the passion and the inclination to help? This leads to some pretty big question though, like what exactly is the best way that you can help? And it's not just Koalas and it's not a uniquely Australian issue. I've worked as a vet in South Africa, the UK and here in Australia. And the reality is that by default, just by virtue of the fact that we are vets, we do help, whether it's pangolins and vervet monkeys, swans and hedgehogs, or koalas and lorikeets, we see, firsthand the end results of the wrong kinds of human-wildlife interactions. But what have you decided to dedicate your entire career to this problem? That is exactly what our guest for this episode did. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Before we introduce our guest for this episode, just a reminder about our clinical series of podcasts. If you haven't subscribed, you won't find them on your normal podcast player. But once you are a subscriber, you can listen to them wherever you normally listen to podcasts. So that's the Apple Podcast Player, or Spotify, or whatever your preference is. So no new apps or clunky web players. We release three new episodes per week where we dig deep into the brains of specialists in small animal medicine, surgery and emergency and critical care for all their best bits of wisdom and experience. We bring our combined 40 years of GP experience to ask the questions about what you need to know to keep your knowledge fresh with all the updates, all the pitfalls and all the pro tips that will take you from rusty and unsure to confident in your knowledge. Episodes are backed up by beautiful show notes to refer back to when you get that case where your newfound knowledge applies, which will be almost every day. Go to vvn.supercast.com for a free two-week trial. Now, back to our guest. Dr. Rosemary Booth, or Rosie as those who know and love her call her, which is a large number of people, is a wildlife veterinarian and has been one since before that was even a job description. Rosie has 40 years of experience in conservation and wildlife work, which started with her master's degree in koalas and their adrenal glands in 1986, which was the start of a lifetime of working to care for this iconic species. Since that time, she's worked in many of Australia's most prominent zoos and wildlife hospitals, spent seven years working for the Queensland government, leading a breeding program for endangered species, during which time they released 170 individuals from several highly endangered species back into the wild. And most recently, she worked as the director for the wildlife hospital at Australia Zoo. She's written more than 100 wildlife-related publications and has trained a small army of others to contribute to this vital work. Rosie has recently retired from her full-time role at Australia Zoo and is now focusing her energy on freelance conservation projects and educating and inspiring a new generation of vets. We talk about the challenges, the misconceptions and the implications of a career in wildlife about staying motivated in a job where your best efforts can sometimes feel a bit fruitless, about big problems and big solutions. Rosie also gives practical advice for those considering a career in wildlife, shares stories about some amazing patients, and so much more. Please enjoy Dr. Rosie Booth. Rosie, welcome to the VetVault. Yeah, thank you. Gerardo? Hello,
1: team. Hello, Rosie.
2: Yeah, hi, Gerardo.
0: Gerardo's back podcasting with us. His brain is mostly normal again.
1: I know. I can't can't hide it now. It's very hard to replicate um, the cognitive deficits I had before, which meant that I had a holiday from podcasting, but now that I speak to human on most days, he knows that I can start to articulate and speak properly. So it's like, so when you jump back on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you have a holiday for a long
2: time and you weren't able to uh, remember how to be professional? The gerardo had encephalitis. Oh, that seriously! Like a weird encephalitis, viral encephalitis.
1: Yeah, I got it from my daughter from from daycare, but parainfluenza to the brain. So I spent ten days in hospital. Came out the other end thinking I was pretty cool until I realised that actually no, not really. Wow! But um,
2: that's frightening. The,
1: mm, so, but but going really well. Recovery's really well. And, uh, yeah, very grateful for the experience. I actually learned so much about myself, my life, and
2: um, with, what things were
1: important, mm. and reevaluated many things and made a big shift in my career as well uh, through the process too. So
2: Excellent. Mm. This is
0: a complete detour, nothing to do with the podcast, but I, I listened to a, another talk the other day by Sam Harris, and they talked about negative experiences mm. and what is What's good? Is there a sweet spot for suffering? Talk about suffering. Do we need suffering in our Mm. lives? And they talk about exactly that, when people go through a a negative experience and then afterwards say, I don't want to do it again, but I'm glad I went through it. Mm. And, And they're actually looking at data and research and they're going, they think possibly we're deluding ourselves. We just, humans are such good storytellers. Yeah. that will take any situation and go yeah that was really good that should have happened <laughs> I'm glad it happened yeah,
2: <laughs>
0: they're not sure they didn't say it for a fact but they said there's a quite quite a possibility that we are just very good at reframing things to mm. otherwise we would just collapse
1: in a heap and go oh poor me <laughs> I th- yeah I don't think if, if you didn't reframe or couldn't see the value of the experience and pushing through it yeah I think every experience would be just like you just yeah you know, yeah we wouldn't survive. Not. You wouldn't survive, that's for
0: sure. All right, let's talk about wildlife vetting. Rosie, I preempted you with this question. I like this one because it normally brings out good stories. Yeah. I once was driving down the freeway in Perth and I saw a graffiti on a wall that said, bad decisions lead to good stories. Mm. And I like that statement and I always ask people, do you agree? Do you think that's true? And if you do, have you got a story to, to prove that?
2: Yeah, yeah, no there's a lot of bad decisions that have led to good things for me but uh, the the one that relates to wildlife is um I decided to go from private practice into research and I had a choice between molecular biology and koalas. The molecular biology thing was fully funded and probably would have taken me into a very lucrative career because it was just starting out back then. But, of course, I chose the unfunded koala research and struggled working part-time and doing a master's. But then the koala thing became my career. And even though, you know, financially it hasn't been the best decision, it's been the most meaningful thing for me because, um, you know, it just led from wildlife job to wildlife job in an era where there weren't very few wildlife jobs.
1: Yeah, my, my, my experience or in discussions with people who work in wildlife, it'd be very hard to get into. I would say it'd be even harder to get into like a wildlife zoo job than it would be to get into a specialty um, residency or something like that. It's super, is it super exclusive or just super not enough spots? Super,
2: Super competitive. There's very few zoos in the Australian region. You know, there's New Zealand and Australia for Australian citizens to choose from. And there'd be so many young people that want to do wildlife residencies and you've got one at Melbourne, one at Perth. I don't think they do one at Adelaide. so in, And Taronga, of course. So there's three people taken care of in our region. <laughs> you know, Back when I started, there were no residencies. And you know, I was very lucky that I did that Masters in koalas because Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary was just looking for their first full-time vet at a time when I was helping them with some of their koala vet work.
0: And were there other people applying at the time, or was it not?
1: No. So it was so that there was nobody hey, else that wanted. Pick, pick, pick me, because I'm the only <laughs> one. <laughs> no one knew what to do with koalas back then, is that right?
2: Well, there was no, nobody thought of it as a job, um, and you know, I just happened to be standing closest at the time that they were looking for someone.
0: How far were you into your post-qualification at that stage? I
2: think uh, that was in my first year when they were running into trouble and... My um, supervisor said, oh, Rosie's a vet. She might be able to help. So <laughs> That's cool. I showed up, I put a koala on a drip, and everyone's like, wow, who knew that <laughs> I was about was to say, what was the
1: level of medicine back then for wildlife? We really like, were <laughs> like, like, in a way, like the pioneer. I don't know, can you give a koala some methadone next time? The koala's like, whoa, put like off its face <laughs> for three days.
2: Yeah. Or atropine, triple dilated. <laughs>
1: Was there medications that were known? When you entered it, was there like a a booklet on koala medicine? Was it just...
2: No, not at all. Um, So it was... Let's give this a go. There was very little information about Australian wildlife at all. So this was 1986, we're talking. So I just used first principles. Fortunately, we, we had very good lecturers at UQ and they had trained us in the art of first principles and just apply those things to anything you're faced with and you will get by. And yeah. so we just use dog and cat doses and you know, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't.
0: I'm curious why did you pick the koala thing versus the you say microbiology or that?
2: Yeah, uh, interesting question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, I was I had spent a lot of time in national parks so I love nature and I loved wildlife when I was growing up. But I think Probably the big trigger for me was I was working in a mixed practice on the outskirts of Brisbane at Pine Mountain and a koala got hit by a car and brought to the practice and it had a a fractured limb. And I thought, oh, I should try and fix this. The boss wasn't terribly opposed to me wasting valuable time on a non-paying customer. (laughs) And it, it just was such a different animal, you know, just trying to meet its needs, trying to get it to cooperate and feed after the surgery... You know, I just was fascinated and I thought, hmm, that's more interesting to me than yes. the molecular biology. I still think molecular biology is interesting, but, um, yeah, it's hard to know why you make the decisions you make. Mm.
1: You, you said there was like a, like, now is it, is it upon reflection that you feel that heading down the koala pathway is... turned out to be more meaningful and more purposeful for you or even back then did you, when you made the choice, you felt that was a more meaningful, purposeful thing or you just flipped the coin?
2: Yeah, no, I think I probably thought it was more purposeful because I like to help the underdog, whereas molecular biology more often helps humans, probably not that, it's not my thing to help humans, they're doing okay. (laughs) The koalas... Needed the help more.
1: They need all the help they can get. They
2: need the help more. But I tell you, as as I get older and I reflect on how I've spent my career, I I thought I was really helping. I thought I was breaking new ground and, and working for the conservation of koalas. I think, oh, this is meaningful. But now, 40 years on, the same issues, they're facing the same issues. I feel less like I've achieved something because, you know, put all this energy in. And the problems are even more severe and more urgent than they were in the eighties.
1: You know, uh. That's facing like deforestation or loss of loss of you know, ha- habitat and things?
2: Yeah, the habitat loss. So the you know, fragmentation for human mm. habitation urban development primarily, but you know, I can't be held accountable for that because I have no control over the human population. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's just um my daughter often says to me, "Well, you didn't do very well, did you?" <laughs> <laughs> That's plenty kids. Thanks. Your, your generation have really made it bad for us, and uh, you know.
0: Jeez, not for lack of trying on yeah. your on your part, at least. Not for lack of. Wow. Yeah, it's something I, you know, I, I struggle with it when I, mm. I I worked with Rosie. If listeners don't know, I, I did a stint working at, at the zoo, mm. um, and even when I applied for the job, I try to be mindful of where you invest your time. And for the same reasons, I thought, well, there's an opportunity. A, I find it very hard to turn down an opportunity. (laughs) And same thing, I love all the wildlife and you want to do something meaningful. But but exactly that question, where is the... What is the most meaningful way to invest your time and talents for the biggest outcome? Because... And I I don't have the answer. Spending the time at the zoo, I think there's definitely meaning in that. On Mm -hmm. on an end, I found a lot of value in saying, well, there is this individual animal. Mm. There's meaning in that. Mm. In relieving suffering. Um, but I still exactly as you say, you go, well, maybe if you're a molecular biologist you could have f- fixed glomeridosis and coal or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I don't know. It's a it's a very tough one.
2: What about you, Gerardo, after your meningitis, have you um, you want to spend your time in the most meaningful way possible? Is it your Mm. loved ones that become the focus or is it how you spend your professional time? Yeah, that's a great
1: question. What I felt during that time is because I went going going through encephalitis, um, uh, rage, I lost lost emotional regulation and resiliency and I'm still developing that now. So I used to spend many hours a day kind of just fuming and really angry and um, put a lot of pressure on my family. And coming out the other end of that, still going through it, but it was super important for me now that I literally schedule in time for family and also make sure that what I do now has a scalable impact. It's it's really hard to explain what that means, but there's lots of opportunities that come through because of knowledge, skills or whatever it may be. But I have a bit of a filter Now, I've had to create a filter of my decision-making process to go, okay, what is good use of the time they have available and how can it help as many people as possible? Mm -hmm. So moving into a role within Animal Emergency Australia where we are going to break down all our clinical content into bite sized pieces and share it with the world Mm -hmm. so that as many people as possible get access to emergency critical care, clinical protocols, but also how to transition into Emergency, how to be a successful, or how to make emergency practice work for you, those kind of things, which are those resources are really hard to find. So I feel that if I can share that with as many people around the world, then that will be a, a meaningful use of my time.
2: Yeah, so, no, exactly. I, I have a similar feeling for the wildlife work is that, you know, being towards the end of my career, I want to spend the last bits of it sharing the information so that more people will benefit. Mm. So it's, that's, that's great.
0: So let's go back to your journey, Rosie. So you started with, take with a, was it a PhD that you said? I was a, a, master, a research A, ma- a re- research in koalas. Yeah. And then where did that take you from that? How do you, end up, how do you go from there to Australia Zoo, wildlife vet, and then we'll talk about what's beyond yeah. that. Yeah,
2: so um, I think I mentioned that Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary offered me full-time employment before I'd even finished my master's, and that was beyond my wildest dreams to become the vet in an organisation that had, I think at the time, 80 koalas. So suddenly wow. I had a herd of 80 koalas. Wow. And uh, they, that depended on me and they, they had all sorts of issues. You know, there was chlamidiosis in that captive population which we needed to eradicate. And so it was super exciting. I only spent 18 months there when I got headhunted for a job in Victoria in a bigger and better native fauna sanctuary, Hillsville sanctuary. Wow. a beautiful place. And um, so the focus for them is not koalas; it was threatened species. So getting into the conservation field, captive breeding. How I mean,
1: could you feel like as if you look back over and you're still tackling the same problems, but not feel yeah. as if? No, no. Is it is is it the marker of your impact? I don't know. Is that is that the right marker for your like for evaluation of your impact and what you've been doing? Or
2: if the animals are still all threatened?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's so. To, you know, I don't um, know, Hubert. You hear what I'm saying, Hubert? Like
2: I do,
0: I do. I like you. You could argue that if there weren't people like you, they'd be gone by now. They're still well, threatened, but they're still here.
2: Yeah, well, some of them are still here. Okay. The the Bramble Cay Melamy, sadly is gone, but um, we didn't get actually you know that was a little rodent that lived on an mm-hmm. island or uh-huh. lived on a K, Bramble K, yeah. the oceans rose because of climate change. and um, The government didn't want to take them into captivity and so they just drowned. So, oh, where's that? Bramble K, it's in Queensland. The um, th- This is a, an example of a species where captive breeding would have definitely kept them alive, but given that Bramble K no longer exists, there's the philosophical right. question of does that... Yep. Melamie's... It exist if it's not existing in its natural habitat. You know, so,
0: so it's literally gone. The the where yeah. they lived is gone.
2: gone. Underwater.
0: So when people talk about right, it's coming and it's going to change. That's it's not coming. It's it's, it's here. here. Oh,
2: it's here. There's so much evidence. Like when you work in the threatened species area, you see in you know, Richmond birdwing butterflies. Their whole breeding cycle is changed by the uh, difference in temperature. And so they're all confused about when they should pupate and when they should emerge as butterflies. And so they're coming out at the wrong time. And there, there's so much evidence when you're working in this area.
1: You just think um, ah. So now, okay, now, 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 on the last, you know, I'm not saying that you're at the end of your career, but what does it look like for you? What would having meaningful impact look like for you now?
2: Oh, what a good question. Um, Hopefully passing on a passion for wildlife to the next generation and to see that people value nature enough to fight for it. I, th- I fear that as a society we're becoming more and more separated from nature and if we become completely separated and we think it doesn't matter, the planet is doomed. We clearly are part of nature and imagine the majority of people on the planet cared about nature as a major thing to protect, we could prolong the life of the planet. That success would look like seeing a groundswell that I contribute to in some small way where the majority of the people care.
0: Yeah, and, and a lot of people do care. There's a, and I see this a lot in veterinary science and I definitely saw it and I know why, working at the wildlife hospital, this whole thing, this whole thought that people suck. We're all animal lovers, or most people in veterinary science are attracted to the career because we work with animals. Mm. And you often see it in in small animal practice, but certainly in wildlife, when people do dumb things, or they do selfish things, or they do ignorant things, Mm. and there's this view that people are bad. But then you see the flip side. You see all these incredible people like yourself and other people who don't suck, (laughs) who do do a lot. And again, it's so great for me to see, because I've got little kids. And they do a lot of nature-focused teaching at their schools. Mm. And we've been in two states, and they, we, we, they took them to the zoo, and it was literally almost the whole term with my eight-year-old. It was all about nature and wildlife and Fantastic. stuff. So it's really encouraging to see that. Mm. Um, how do you feel? Do you feel like we're on the right track with a lot of it?
2: Oh, I, I, I fear sometimes that the greedy, bad people might outnumber the mm. good, caring people, but I don't have clear statistics on that western society certainly seems to be divorced from nature and from you know they don't even know where milk comes from for example it comes from the fridge (laughs) it's um it's frightening to me to see how society seems to be getting a little bit our western society seems to be out of control with technology and everybody's on their phone and on the computer and here we are talking through this (laughs) but um, this is good because we're communicating but I I fear that um, people are losing sight of their dependence on forests and on green space and not spending enough time going outside and breathing in the fresh air and remembering not to be caught up in this treadmill that we get on get up in the morning check your phone stay all hyper for the whole day and then collapse and begin again whereas there is an option
0: yeah I think it what comes down to I think there's also a lot of people who who care Mm. but then when it comes to a choice between do I care about something that's not me Mm. or my family or my financial success how much do I care do I care enough to make decisions that might cost me Mm. in some little bit of luxury or some something else, I think that's where we fall down. Mm. I think people have great intentions, but we're also inherently really, well, no, you, you've raised a kid, mm. I, I always look at my kids and go, we're self, such selfish little creatures. Mm. We are so set and chosen by evolution for our own survival and what's good for me and what's maximizing my comfort and my family and my direct crew to to prosper mm. at the cost of anything else. And how do we get that past them? To say to these kids, yeah, these are cool animals, but don't just be excited about it. Make life choices. Oh. That,
2: but that whole selfishness is is very primal, isn't it? I mean, even animals—they're oh, yeah. they're trying to protect their own genetic material, their own families. Yeah. So, it's, it's,
1: one thing I found interesting when I was when we started looking into um, us as a business and how we can stand for something that is in alignment with our values, but is outward facing towards the community or to environment. And the reason being is we can get focused on the, the numbers and metrics and the profitability of a business. And it's important to have a profitable business so you can help and maintain the health and welfare of pets, but also provide money for for the staff. But
2: mm.
1: beyond that point, it's almost like sometimes having an outward-facing goal or choice or, or, or objective where people can come around and, and, and be involved in. And we started looking at green practices and making our hospitals environmentally more sustainable. Mm. And we had this consultant come out and had a chat to us and he, he was talking about the impact that one person could have on on like a normal person, you know, deciding to do recycling and deciding to buy a small car or maybe ride the bicycle and stuff. He goes, that's great. And it, and it, and it definitely helps. But then where the impact starts to scale is the impact of big business corporations and industry and things. But it's got to start from people to put their hand up and want something to shift or change within their employer or within their organization. And it was from that that I realised that, um, yeah, like we can still, ha- the, the problems may be big and huge, but then if we speak up and put pressure and and stand for something that, that may make a, an impact on a $40 million hospital-like company, then that's a massive impact. But it might only take 10 of you, 20 of you of the staff to put their hand and go, hey, look, this really needs to change and we need to support something.
2: Yeah. One of the things that's frightening from working at Australia Zoo Wildlife Hospital is we get a lot of donations of medical waste, what they call waste, you know, the things that they throw out at the hospital. And so um, being a wildlife hospital there's an opportunity to be donated a lot of the things they would otherwise throw out. And it's just frightening, the quantity of things. You know, a, a drape that is opened but not used can't be used for another human's.
0: <laughs> I, I had the same experience when we I organized a sp- spade trip in Indonesia. Mm. And I went to a hospital through a friend in Perth looking for stuff to take with us. Mm. Oh, she took me and the nurse took me into a room mm. of all the throwaway stuff. Mm. It's literally a room full of stuff. And we're talking about closed, sealed, metal surgical instruments. That was it's just beyond their, the date that they said they're no longer classified as mm. surgically sterile. And then they chuck them.
2: Yeah, no, there's a lot that needs to be done in that industry. But at the wildlife hospital, we get to reuse things like the anaesthetic machines that are worth $30,000 Knew that they were going to scrap. And we were able to acquire that for a mere $3,000. And yesterday we used it on a giant turtle, a 100-kilo turtle for a flipper amputation. And the ventilator was working beautifully and so... It's so fantastic for us. That was a piece of equipment that we got for next to nothing mm. compared to its value. It was going to landfill, and we were able to ventilate a turtle for hours where normally we wouldn't yeah. be able to do that because a 100 kilo mm. turtles like a human, so the ventilator worked well on him. <laughs> the human ventilator.
1: I remember doing prac work at Australia an Zoo, and um, there was a, a turtle, a big, maybe a big leatherback or something. It was a huge turtle, and he was in a pool next to the hospital like okay? I to the hospital, I had a pool behind it must be one of the residences on on and I wasn't in the pool but I had to help lift out this pool uh this turtle but he was down the bottom of the pool in the deep end and a couple of guys had to jump down and kind of lift him up out of the pool and then like five of us had lifted him out to put the creams for his fibropapillomatosis or something but that was a life-changing experience I thought that was incredibly cool
2: we have but, all this um, fantastic lifting equipment now. We have electric hoists and um, oh, not
1: cool. five
0: prac students. it's, yeah. very, it's <laughs> yeah. very cool. We one. Yeah, well, you still have to go catch them in the pool. Yeah, no, we still have to so, jump into the pool. Such up amazing. Up and, well, not music. me,
2: but the...
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's a, in summer. That's the best part of the job. You get to get in the pool. <laughs> <with> <laughs> On the <hot> day. <laughs> yeah. A hot Becoming very philosophical. Let's get a little bit practical, Rosie. If if I'm a young yeah. Let's say there are young vets out there listening and going, yeah, I, I think I want to do wildlife. Mm. What's the journey these days? What does it look like? How, how do you get involved in it?
2: Oh, it's so much easier. And you can follow a, a sensible path. So you can do a residency at one of the major zoos. You can do a master's in wildlife conservation at Massey in New Zealand. And um, you can also do exams to become a specialist. So there, there is a, a more traditional path now to follow to, to gather your um, education and your skills. Mm-hmm. But nothing beats practical experience and doing your prac work when you're a student at one of the major wildlife hospitals. So there's three in southeast Queensland, there's um, all of the zoos have wildlife hospitals.
1: The, the, um, the medicine, like one thing I found, like this is a while ago when I came through and did prac work at Australia Zoo. And I was talking to a couple of the the nurses there and the head nurses and we're talking about like the medicine styles and the styles of medicine at one hospital might be different to the style of medicine in a different hospital, like, and the management care of a koala here, they do this, but they do that. Like, is there more of a standardisation of the medicine associated with wildlife or is it still a little bit more, kind of location dependent
2: that's a that's a good question there there are variations between the hospitals depending on you know who the primary veterinary influence is. and you can get trends that are not always you know science-based so there, there is a, a good thing happening at the moment the department of environment got all of the southeast queensland wildlife hospitals into a network with a memorandum of understanding and we we share our protocols and we Meet regularly to try and come to a consensus with Mm science-based decision making and removing egos and and um, trying to make the protocols based on consensus, Mm. which is good because it wasn't always like that.
0: Well, I think it's it's in part because there's still so much that is unknown. Mm. And I in my stint there, it, it was it was a. First I thought this is a bad thing and then I found it potentially is a really good thing career-wise if you decide that's what you're going to commit your life to. Initially, when there was things that that I had to do that there was some vagueness around, where I'd say, well, what do we do And And somebody would say, well, we're not 100% sure we try this, but there's no evidence, but we think this works. And I find that quite hard because, you know, in in emergency practice, it's such standardized, this is the proven current best therapy. And I found it like, well, I I want to know what I'm doing. I don't want to just right, but then on the flip side, it's also really exciting because you can. There's so much opportunity to go. There's this thing that yeah. we don't know, and I could be the person to figure this out if mm. you commit the time to it. There's such such scope for discovering new things if you're a curious person. It could be an awesome career. Absolutely.
2: the The uh, every day is a fresh challenge. There's always something that crops up that you haven't done before, and it. Mm. Like, that's one of the things I love about wildlife medicine is is the unknown. Um, you know, instead of domestic animal work where so much more is mm. set now, um, there's still plenty of unknown in the wildlife field. So,
1: yeah. Well, what you, what you just said there, the unknown, right? And finding that exciting or interesting is um, the mindset associated with that is like being okay with uncertainty. Yeah. And, and stepping into that. So, yeah, exactly. And I've, I found that confronting.
2: We see um, some private practitioners who come to the hospital, they freeze when they see something that is unfamiliar. And and the difference between a wildlife vet, I think, and a domestic animal vet is that comfort in the unknown. It's it's like galvanises you into a state of excitement to solve the problem yeah. as opposed as to stopping you from acting. You know, the, oh, I don't know what to do, I don't want to do any harm. But... Um, I, I, it's a maybe it's a borderline personality disorder that we all have <laughs> in the wildlife game, and, but um, it you can really see the difference between. But I, I don't think it's a
0: personality thing. I think it is just being comfortable with it because again you go through uni and, and this, you get taught this is how you do it. Mm. Not a lot of wiggle room there. Mm. There's a you right way, certainty. there's a wrong way. There's the papers on how to do it. Mm. Don't do it differently because it's wrong. Mm. And then when you m- confront a situation that is that doesn't fall within that scope, you go well. Now I don't know what to do because I haven't read the book. Mm. And I've I've actually found it really helpful for my Smalley's work is is, to ha- to. is having gone to the zoo to go. Yeah, sometimes you don't know, but mm. you you have knowledge, and you taught me a lot of this. That you have some knowledge that you can draw on mm. and improvise and figure something out. Mm. So it's it's actually been really good. It's it's, it's shifted my mindset a little bit.
2: Yeah, you have lots out. of knowledge.
1: Somewhere there, somewhere. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't make that. You're so locked in your little box of, well, this is where my knowledge ends. And you're going, well, no, just extrapolate a little yeah, bit. And you can exactly. still apply it. Uh, so we're talking about career as a wildlife veterinarian. Are there misconceptions? Are there, are there things that you think? You know, vet student or young vet thinks, I want to be a wildlife vet. You have to learn to love because because lorikeets, it, those easy little oh bastard birds. God. You don't
2: have to love them. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we can have to tell the,
0: the lorikeet story of the... 200-and-something lorikeets on one day. Have I told you this? The hailstorm. Were you there for the the
1: hailstorm? Yeah. Oh, 200 lorikeets. That would be Armageddon and death in my mind. So as soon as you hear hear that
2: sound, you know you're going to
1: get bitten, right? I walked in in the morning.
0: Nice Saturday morning. We had a big thunderstorm come over the coast, and walking in, it's just chaos. Everybody's there. There's literally... 200 plus lorikeets beat, beaten up and battered by hailstones. Yeah, uh, ice balls. You know how they all roost in, in one or two trees? A whole farm. Oh, and the of tree just got annihilated. And they got, got smashed. And they had yeah, bruises concussed. on their heads. And they were concussed and It was, was bad. Oh, oh. <laughs> I feel bad
1: for the lorikeets yeah. until they bite you. And then yeah. you're like,
2: oh, <laughs> damn, lorikeet. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But we were able to save yeah, several hundred,
1: of them. Yeah, hundreds. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah,
0: really satisfying. Probably half yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah, about half of them yeah. went, went home. Well, home, yeah.
2: And, and, and that's the thing that most people don't understand when they become wildlife vets is what the mortality rate is because you can't um, stop everything from dying and sometimes euthanasia is the kindest yeah. thing to do for them. So, you know, it's almost um, 60-40 where 60% of the animals need euthanasia because they can't be returned to the wild because of the chronic injuries. So, what, is, um,
1: what is the impact of that? Because general practice, like I, I don't know what the, the euthanasia rate is in general practice, but in an emergency, it's somewhere between fifty to fifteen to twenty yeah. percent
2: on average. Mm.
1: But sixty percent, like uh, yeah, like what's the toll there?
2: There's definitely there's definitely a toll. Every every day, there's an animal you have to euthanize that really gets to you. Either its suffering is so extreme, or you know, it came so close to being releasable, and then it doesn't quite make it. So there, there is an enormous uh, impact on the people in the world. They, they, every animal means a lot to you. But I think the ability to end suffering is is such a beautiful thing, and you would see that in domestic animals too. Some animals are so uh, in need of having their lives terminated that you feel good about it because you have the ability to give them that gift of not suffering anymore. So that's how I try and get people to remember that that is an honour to be able to relieve suffering. But it it does damage the people, definitely. I think um, sometimes there's almost a use-by date where it's too much and you have to go and do something (laughs) else and wash cars for a living or something. Because (laughs) it just goes, oh, God, there's... So much – it's like being in a MASH unit sometimes, the number of critical injuries that, that come in. You just don't want to see it anymore, especially when these wild animals mean a lot to you and then you see them so injured.
1: So how did, how did you – what strategies did you put in place to – I don't know, do you, you palm off the, all the euthanasia to the new vet or, <laughs> or do you uh...
2: – Definitely not – I, I reinforce that message of you're giving these animals a gift often because i, I see it crushing people you know the the nurses in particular
0: they care so much and then i've I was yeah. just astounded by because you think that you'd get jaded or people would get jaded and, and blunted to the suffering but it was just so astounding to see see people and then especially the nurses how much they they cared mm. there was that
2: Veterinary nurses are, are amongst my favorite people on yeah. the planet because you know, they, they are so nurturing and they they try so hard with every patient and when you watch how much energy they put in to their job.
0: There's, I, I have to have tell this story. <laughs> there was a, um, we, we did an anesthetic on a koala mm. and it was going back out to, to the run post-anesthetic and then suddenly there's a nurse, shout out to Daisy, <laughs> <All right. laughs> running back in. In a panic, in tears. And her, she's got this little bum bag with pens and instruments and they freaking fly all over the place. You see pens flying and she's like, what's happening? And it's this tiny little pinky in her hands. And I, I just, it was really quite emotional. How she, she nurtured it in this little pink thing in her hands going... It's dying. So the pouch hung, the, the little pinky had fallen out of the pouch. post both anaesthetic. It had fallen off the nipple. But just to see that level of care and, and going, this little thing saved. <laughs> just really. We
2: managed to get that baby yeah, back on. the yeah, mother did. came back in and had another anaesthetic and it reattached. So yeah, that, that, right. was, that was. Yeah, yeah, That was a happy story because you know there's a size where you can't get them back on, and it was probably just. I've a, got
0: a video of that. I'll put it on the on the website. Yeah, yeah <laughs>
2: no, that was that was very cool. And yeah, she was so distraught yeah. that one little life. Oh, yeah, yeah you got to love them. But that, did that answer your question, Gerardo? I got went off track a bit. <laughs> oh
1: no, but well, it, it, it is. It's good to hear because um, I, I always think it's it's an honour and, and then, like it. do uh, still euthanasias get to me sometimes, but it's yes. it's not like a, that. I used to think that I should just be man of steel despite the fact that I may be in some no, I um, but now I've just accepted the fact that sometimes they do now they sometimes they do get to me despite the fact I've been doing heaps of euthanasia for 10 years now um, and and it is still it, it, it is still a gift and it's an honor I love what you said that honor that was good
0: you told a story in a meeting Rosie once about um, was that a tiger he was somewhere in a zoo
2: oh God. The tiger in Kathmandu. Remind me. The, um, the, the One of the reasons I value euthanasia as an option is uh, travelling to a country where euthanasia is not an option. Mm. I was lucky enough to travel to Nepal and we visited Kathmandu Central Zoo back in the 90s and they had a tiger there that was on display to the public that had been um, captured because he was a man-eater. Um So he'd been taken prisoner. And in the process of being captured, he'd been shot several times. He had a fractured femur and some other fractures that had not been treated. And so he was crippled and he had grown to adulthood in the wild and he was now in a cage, in a zoo, being um, stared at by humans.
0: With a smashed
2: femur. Yeah, with a horribly healed um, smashed femur. And... um, the suffering in his eyes. Uh, you know, the, I I love tigers. They they are like the um, symbolism of the wildest, most successful creature on the planet to me. You know, a nice competent predator who um, you know, also extremely good at raising their young and I, and just to see that suffering in the eyes of this animal who had once lived under his own. You know, he had master of his domain control of his own destiny, and now he was trapped. And I, I really wanted to arrange for him to be euthanized in the time I was there because I couldn't stand seeing him like that. And it was such a struggle to get the other people involved in his care to, to see what I could see. An interesting problem. Unfortunately, I was unable to make that happen. There was no barb in the country. You had to get it from India. Put some steps in place, and I hope that it eventually... Did happen, but uh, yeah, that was traumatizing. I can still picture his eyes to this day.
0: Yeah, so you're right. It is a, it's true actually. If you imagine not being able to do it, what a that would be
1: heaps worse. It'd be much much worse. Sometimes when a lorikeet bites me, I threaten <laughs> you with euthanasia.
0: Oh, I threaten <laughs> dogs all the time. When you get cranky dogs, I always say to them, "Dude, I have the power to kill you." I, I can I can and I will.
1: Well <laughs> what is it with lorikeets? How can we just see lots and lots of lorikeets? It's because they're like high flying demons that's that fly around at like hundred kilometers per hour and can't see well or something? Like
2: No, they they, they do well in an urban environment. But you're you're right, they do have a lot of flying accidents. They fly into windscreens, they fly into windows, they fly very fast with no concern for their safety. But, but there are a lot of them, you know, they live in large flocks, they do well in an urban environment with all the flowering plants, you know, the lovely grevilleas and bottle brush that we're all so fond of.
1: But it's just because there's so many of them that we see lots of them. Exactly. Not that just they're just all a bit mong and can't like, no. fly well the, or something.
2: You, If you get a chance, go to Currumbin Sanctuary and watch the rainbow lorikeet feeding there because there's flocks of hundreds of them. And periodically they will startle because you know maybe a bird of prey goes over. And then they all fly out of the arena at this high speed, and if you stand still, they'll fly around you like they'll make – they're flying at, like, Whoa. God knows what speed per hour, and they'll suddenly – they won't crash into you. So they're not Hmong. They're actually <laughs> – they're actually extremely good aerobats.
1: <laughs> Apart from invisible barriers they can't see, which makes sense, you know. Yes. Force fields like glass. Yes, yeah.
2: and – and they're, um, you know, often feeding close to the sides of the road, so they take mm. off and misjudge
0: it. I'm getting mm. the feeling that no rainbow lorikeet leaves the hospital with you, Gerardo, if you're on shift.
1: <laughs> just <Yeah>. just, <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: no, they come, come in
1: to... and they're screeching and screaming, <laughs> and then they're on their back and they're trying to claw you to death with their claws as well as their beaks. I'm like, okay, you're probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask about another patient that I saw. I,
0: I was gone by this time it came in. The little platypus. Oh, that you really? guys had. Yeah, what yeah. happened to that? Um, well, that tell us the story. Uh, what, what? Oh, yeah,
2: okay. So a platypus was found swimming in circles at Mullaney near the shopping centre. Mm-hmm. So there's a beautiful obi Creek runs through Mullaney and past the shopping centre car park and there's a viewing area there. Oh, really? And somebody observed this platypus swimming in tight circles and could tell mm-hmm. it wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. So they captured it and brought it into the hospital and um, did a full exam. I happened to be a bit of a platypus vet I've worked with a lot of them, and I love them. So I was aware that there's a neurological and disease Angiostrongylus cantonensis. We've seen that in a platypus before. So. Hookworm, um, rat lungworm.
1: rat lungworm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So we had um, differentials were head trauma. She had some abrasions on her bill and on her feet. Hypoxic brain injury from being entrapped under the water. You Sunken shopping trolleys and other, other. or even nets that people put in for catching fish and crayfish. Or angiostrongus, or something we hadn't thought of. Well taught. (laughs) 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 So um, so we did a CSF tap to see if we could see eosinophils or any evidence of the angiostrongus, and that was normal. We did blood work, and she does have a very elevated globulin, which says to me she's mounting an immune response to something. So I I am fearful that it is angiostrongous. Okay. So we've we've been treating her with anti-inflammatories, antibiotics in case it was a bacterial meningitis. That was a differential that I didn't mention. And... um, support feeding her because she can't be put in deep water or she will just swim in circles but in shallow water she feeds very well okay so so well, she's still there she's she's not at the zoo I, I have sent her to um walkabout creek where they've been displaying platypus for years and the rangers they're very um expert at keeping platypus alive so um initially she was doing brilliantly and then she's just had a recent setback so there is mounting evidence that I think she has worms periodically migrating through her cerebellum in particular. And you
0: can't kill them and in the brain?
2: Well, if you kill them, um, you know, from the human literature, humans get it too, and dogs. But um, if you kill them, the inflammatory response can be fatal. Yeah, yeah. So better to let them leave. They're on a, they're on a mission to migrate out. <laughs> and, uh, and spread the cycle. So I let them migrate out of the brain back into the gastrointestinal tract. And, but um, <laughs> she's still alive. Unfortunately, the brain damage hasn't affected her ability to forage. So that's really exciting because it was September she came in. Yeah, I
0: saw that. I'm now so now sad I'm I missed that because I've been dying to see one gonna... I've <laughs> What's next for Rosie?
2: Um, well, I'm in a semi-retired state now, so I'm hoping to spend the last year's teaching. Yeah to uh, encourage more people to go into the wildlife field and help uh, re-embrace their relationship with nature.
0: I really like this. So if you are a young vet who wants to do wildlife work, you might have the privilege of Rosie teaching you soon.
2: Yeah, I've got to um, get it all out before I forget things, <laughs> <laughs> which is already too late.
0: <laughs> you've been in the in the profession a long time, Rosie. Is there anything over the past five years or so that you've learned... That has changed your mind about something, or that you didn't know, or, or felt differently about.
2: There, there is actually, but it doesn't stem from work. Um, my my parents have both passed away in the last five years, and that's been an incredibly sad experience. But also, it's it's triggered a nice change in the way I approach life because you know it's the the issue of remember you are mortal. Like until your parents die, you kind of think they're going to be there forever yeah. and then to have them disappear off the face of the planet is like mm, we're all mortal yeah. if there's anything that i still want to get done i better get yeah. on and get it done and also it, it galvanizes you to reprioritize everything in your life and that's why i have stopped working full-time and i am now moving towards the things that are most important to me where you know, my, my family, my daughter in particular, and um, making sure that the energy that I expend every day is directed towards things that are really, really important to me. And I think, Gerardo, your um, encephalitis experience has mm-hmm. done something similar. I think it's very important for us to remember that our time is finite and um, yeah, stop procrastinating. Look after yourself, look after your loved ones, and do what you have always wanted to do in terms of productive things, I'm thinking, not just mm. selfish.
0: It's a challenge, though, because even that, to, to decide what what are those things yeah. can be really hard, because I, I, I struggle with it often, because I'm very well aware uh, that, I mean, there's research that shows that family and relationships is what matters. Yes. There's literally, there's the, there's the one I looked at the other day, there's the Harvard Harvard Wellness Study or something like that where they, they mm. track people from when they're students at Harvard all the way to, to death. And then they mm. uh, check who's the happiest, quotation mark, what's happy. Mm. And it is the, the people with the best relationships with those close to them. Mm. Mm. But then also, I, I'm also caught. because so I, I try and prioritize my family and my kids. Mm. But then it can be really stressful because you go, I also have other stuff I want to do. I want to contribute to the world. I want to help other people. Mm. That takes time and energy. So there's that, that fine balance the whole time of mm. what's important but where's the balance? It's it's in,
2: in a workplace too. Your workplace, you spend so much time there. Those people become your family mm. and they matter to you yeah. as well. Yeah. So, you know, that's a challenge to leave a place where you know, for 5 years, 6 years I've had a family-like experience, but um, I think I got overly task focused and was expending every last bit of energy mm. in the workplace. <laughs> and you can you know, as you get older you feel that it's having an impact on your body and you're affecting your own survival, I think, unless you take charge of say this is how much energy I have for that activity yeah. and a reserve sum for
0: mm. I heard something the other day that, that helped me. Mm can't remember where I read it, but it said that... I probably it, told you, mate.
2: <laughs> <That's sick. laughs>
0: that the problems that are worth solving, bigger, bigger picture problems, yeah. except that you're probably not going to solve it in your lifetime. Because I think that's the problem. We think, there's this thing I need to do. You know, Gerardo, you've got your impact you want to make. You want to change the world. You want to save the koalas or something. Yeah. And you you're aware of the... F- Finiteness of of your time on earth, so you've got to constantly work at it because you've got to finish the job. Mm. And actually accepting you're probably not, you're probably individually not going to finish the job. Mm. As a species, we move towards that goal, and you bring your bit and you do what you can. But make peace with the fact that it will probably not be done, mm. and you're going to pass that job to the next person behind you. Yeah, which helps me a lot. To go, okay, well, I don't have to achieve everything this week. That's right. right. <laughs> You, it's, it's you have two weeks to do it <laughs>
2: life is a relay you pass it on
1: yeah i think i think if you if you i all for you know like i put the word in scalable impact but scalable impact means that you create a i don't know a mission a movement or a vision that other people can be inspired by or can follow along and then that's where you start to scale the message and it's difficult. To create that movement, to create that change, um, but mm. I think technology these days enables us to be able to reach much more people and have a bigger impact, provided yeah. that we are.
2: Isn't that true? Mm.
1: Provided that we are strategic with our time and yes. strategic with uh, how we do it too. We only do have a certain amount of energy in the day, and that that's relationships now are really important for me at work in a way that if i can help people find their careers create their careers or if i find people who have aligning visions and values then then i'll take those people along for the ride with me but alongside if not help them create their own vision and values and create their own career pathways and that has been very rewarding for me
2: yeah when you can see the results of your influence it's probably the most satisfying thing, isn't it? You can spend a lot of time saying things to people that won't necessarily have an impact, but when you do see that you've had an impact, it's like, oh, wow, that person listened and took it further. Especially, you know, the younger people. I don't know, you possibly don't have this problem, Gerardo, but younger people are so much smarter than me because (laughs) the the veterinary profession is getting harder to get into. And so... um, you see these bright young sparks, and you know they've, they've certainly got the intellect, but they haven't necessarily got the experience. So it's nice to be able to influence them, to use their um, schmarts to to do better than I ever could.
1: Hmm. Well, we can have a chat about that.
2: <laughs> I was going
0: to say we've got the right combination here. We've got to scale Rosie's passion, knowledge, and how much you care, and find a way to scale it. This is where you're gonna, your teaching is going to be there. Yeah, scaling of that. Keeping the platforms, but we should think of think laterally. Find some find some ways for us. Uh, let's wrap it up with the. You don't listen to podcasts, I think. I've asked you before. No, no. so there's no point asking you about your favorite podcast. <laughs> <laughs> <It's fine.
2: laughs> well, she only has
0: one at the moment, so has to be a favorite. Really. Yeah, no, it's
2: great.
0: <laughs> books then, uh, books that you've read in the last year or so that you found particularly impactful or.
2: I brought it with me. Oh. I, I brought a book. Um, I, w- I just had a holiday a road trip to far north Queensland and I bought a book in a second-hand shop up there and um, it really is... I couldn't put it down. It's called Venom and it's a true story about the uh, adventures of a few amazingly brave people to try and capture a taipan so that they could make anti-venom for the almost 100% fatal bite um, that were happening when people first inhabited Far North Queensland. It makes you think at so many levels, because the the people who had to catch the taipans to make the antivenom were risking their lives, and, in fact, the first young man who caught a taipan to um, make the first antivenom died in the process. The snake bit him while he was trying to get it in the bag, he knew that he was going to die and the, his final act was to get it in the bag and clamp that bag off in a safe way so that that snake would definitely go to save other human lives and you just think wow wow what courage wow respamps yeah and then then the other thing to think about there is what happens to the snakes you know the very first snake that went To make the first anti-venom was handled by David Flay. That venom was collected by David Flay. If everybody, do you know who he is? No, he's a great Australian zoologist. Started David Flay Wildlife Park and bred the first platypus that were bred in captivity at Hillsborough Sanctuary. Oh, I think yeah.
0: yeah, I'll come back to my book in a sec.
2: But um, he he was called in to the Melbourne Museum to capture the snake and venom so you know he was taking his life in his hands mm. to do that as well and they didn't uh, have alfaxan back then <laughs> no, they didn't have well they still take the venom on conscious snakes but wow. taip- taipans are faster than humans they're smart they're and they're super deadly yeah. so you know they're, they're just an exciting animal but then you have to think you know that that first snake died because of very poor animal husbandry and everyone was so terrified of it that they you know tended to it locked up and yeah. didn't look after it very well. So you know, there's the animal welfare issue there, and not that many people get bitten by snakes, but a lot of taipans have been captured. How how much how many people risk their lives trying to catch that snake to save the one or two people that were bitten per year?
0: <laughs> it's almost like they've probably saved a fair amount of dogs down the
1: line
2: because of that. <laughs> yeah. <guys. laughs> but it's a it's a really exciting book. It, it talks about the one person who survived without antivenom and it talks about uh, the first little boys whose life was saved because of the antivenom. Okay, well. And it talks about all the all of the heroes that searched for the snakes and it you know, I, I was bushwalking in shorts in far north Queensland after reading that book, and I was freaked out (laughs) because there's so many stories about they bite first and ask questions later because, you know, that's the kind of predator they are. They're they're unique. Super aggressive. But um, very admirable animals.
0: Okay. So let's fast forward a year or two. Rosie is hosting a talk, an international talk, (laughs) Um, and you have all of the – young veterinarians the new graduate vets of the world tuning in and listening because they want to know how to be a wildlife vet. You have one little bit of advice that you can give them all. What's your bit of advice?
2: It would definitely be to keep learning. Never never think you know it all. Keep learning. I I learn things every day and you can learn things from everyone around you, not just the smartest person in the room. You learn things from the animals that you work with. So, So keep learning. When you learn something new, Pass it on to the next person. Pay it forward.